Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. Good evening. This is The Source. I'm Caitlin Collins, live from Tel Aviv tonight, and we begin with two major breaking stories at this hour. Right now, we are three hours away from a fragile truce between Israel and Hamas potentially coming to an end. Right now, there is a very real possibility that it may not be extended. But first tonight, we start with this, which we have just confirmed moments ago. Former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died. That's according to his consulting firm, Kissinger Associates. He was 100 years old. A statement says that he passed away at his home today in Connecticut. Kissinger, of course, was Secretary of State under Presidents Nixon and Ford, the only person to ever serve as the National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. At the same time, more now on his legacy. I know all of you will want to hear from the new Secretary of State. Henry Kissinger never really needed an introduction on the world stage again. Kissinger, the most famous statesman of the last half of the 20th century. Celebrated and controversial. I'm not going to make any <laughs> As Richard Nixon's national security advisor and secretary of state, the diplomat wielded enormous power and influence. So trusted that it was Kissinger who went to China on a secret mission to explore a historic opening of U.S. relations with communist China. Whoever went would be alone in Beijing with no communication. And therefore, if he didn't know Nixon's mind, he might do foolish things. Initially, there were fears a U.S.-China ping-pong exchange match would affect the high-stakes political gambit. Every uh, once in a while, something happens in diplomacy which transcends the drafting of cables. Vietnam. Casualties mounted as the Vietnamese gained territory. Nixon and an undiplomatic Kissinger thought more bombing of the North would help. I would then recommend that we start bombing the Kissinger approved secret bombings of North Vietnamese units in Cambodia without congressional approval. He would say, sometimes statesmen have to choose among evils, moral compromises in messy conflicts. Kissinger and his Vietnamese counterpart, Le Duc Tho, were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their role in negotiating a ceasefire. I have to say, I have never dealt with a group of people as treacherous as the North Vietnamese leadership. Kissinger insisted trouble on the home front hurt chances to succeed in Vietnam. We lost the war because we were divided and also because we were too uncertain about what we wanted. Kissinger's support for a coup in Chile and pro-U.S. military strongmen in other parts of the world drew criticism. Kissinger's legacy would be contested decades later when he testified in Congress at the age of 91. Kissinger grew up in Germany with war clouds swirling. His family fled when he was 15. About half of the people I went to school with and about 13 members of my own family died in concentration camps. 
a Jewish Secretary of State who would later listen to his president criticize American Jewish leaders. It's about goddamn time that the Jew in America realized an American first, a Jew second. Well, I couldn't agree more. I only heard anti-Semitic comments when some Jewish group would attack him for something he had done. In the Middle East, Kissinger performed what came to be known as shuttle diplomacy to separate Israeli and Arab forces, setting the stage for future peace accords. When Nixon resigned as president, Kissinger stayed on as Gerald Ford Secretary of State, his opinion still widely sought after by governments and businesses after leaving public office. You want to leave your country better off than you found it. And there's nothing in private life you can do that's as interesting and as fulfilling. There was one job Kissinger said he never got to do in his life, a sports announcer. Derek who? However, the globe-trotting diplomat did star in some of history's biggest games. For more now on Henry Kissinger's legacy, for those just tuning in, we have now confirmed Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. I want to bring in CNN presidential historian Tim Naftali, who joins me now on the phone. Tim, thank you for hopping on the phone for this breaking news. I, I mean, just as we start here and as we look at this moment, can you just put his long legacy in shaping foreign affairs into perspective? Well, uh, Henry Kissinger was a towering figure uh, in U.S. foreign relations, um, both admired and hated. Uh, he was the most consequential foreign policymaker of the uh, superpower era. Uh, he didn't do it alone. He and Richard Nixon were a powerful team. But uh, Kissinger provided uh, a genius for multi-level, playing multi-level diplomatic chess which allowed uh, the U.S. government and the Nixon administration to implement Nixon's policies, the most famous of which, of course, was the opening to China. Um, Henry Kissinger began his career um, as, a, as a professor, as an academic at Harvard, uh, thinking about U.S. foreign policy in particular, thinking about nuclear weapons and their uh, utility, uh, in the struggle with the Soviet Union. Uh, he sought power himself. Um, he initially was an advisor to the Kennedy administration uh, when uh, he didn't feel that he was uh, listened to. Um, uh, he offered himself to Nelson Rockefeller, uh, who was a Republican, governor of New York. Um, he later provided some assistance to the Johnson administration, but found his home ultimately, as the implementer uh, and chief advisor to Richard Nixon. And it is the Nixon-Kissinger team that would be the most consequential of any team uh, in U.S. foreign policy until the end of the Cold War. After uh, he left uh, Washington, he remained significant, um, not only as a conduit between American foreign policy leaders and leaders that Kissinger had known. But Kissinger was the man to see if you wanted to meet the, the latest American president. So Richard, so Kissinger is not only significant in shaping the policies of one presidency uh, as both a national security advisor, then a secretary of state, then both, but he would become 
a signal figure, an important figure for those trying to understand U.S. foreign policy for decades. Indeed, after his 100th birthday, Henry Kissinger was an honored guest in China. And for the Chinese, Kissinger was a symbol of a relationship uh, with the United States that frankly doesn't really exist anymore. Kissinger was also extremely controversial because he and Nixon had undertaken extremely controversial policies. The Christmas bombing and at the overturning of the Allende government in Chile. And you know what I'm thinking about just Tim being here on the ground in Tel Aviv as this news is breaking is his role here in the Middle East. I mean, in the efforts that he he undertook to forge a peace, you know, after the 1973 war and what that looked like. And just can you talk about that influence that he had, particularly on this region in that moment? Well, he had enormous influence, first of all, because the president of the United States was largely incapacitated during the Occupy War. Uh, Nixon uh, was um, was dealing with um, the acceleration of the Watergate scandal and the, the start of the impeachment inquiry. And for all intents and purposes, Richard uh, Henry Kissinger was directing U.S. foreign policy during the Yom Kippur crisis. After the crisis, Kissinger, with Nixon's approval, of course, but Kissinger undertook the most complicated set of negotiations to um, establish uh, a, a lasting ceasefire on both the northern border with Syria and the uh, border with Egypt and the south. That took enormous effort and was a, a real diplomatic achievement on the part of, of Henry Kissinger. So he is remembered as a very significant figure in the history of the Middle East. And let's not also forget that he undertook very strenuous negotiations with the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, which led to the end of the American uh, dimension of the Vietnam Civil War. So Henry Kissinger was the most significant a diplomatist of uh, the Cold War, without exception. Tim, I want you to stand by because I, I want you to continue putting this legacy in perspective. But we also have Susan Glasser, of staff writer of The New Yorker. Susan, I mean, just looking at putting his legacy in perspective with how it's viewed now, I mean, this is someone who was revered and also reviled. I mean, Secretary of State, the only person to ever serve is the White House National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. I mean, how do you put his legacy in perspective to how people view it now in 2023? Well, Caitlin, thank you so much. I mean, I would agree with you that he was a, a divisive figure in life, as he will now be in death, in, in, inevitably, uh, you know, for many uh, liberals, really for multiple generations. You know, Kissinger's, uh, what they would say, the evidence of his war crimes in advising Richard Nixon and in, in, in the secret bombing of Cambodia, those things loom large. But equally so were the diplomatic achievements you were just speaking about. Uh, you know, he his his enormous foreign policy 
uh, vision and big brain uh, shaped the, the, the later decades of the Cold War in a way uh, that we are still dealing with the legacy of it. The Middle East, uh, you know, he, he basically created the notion of shuttle diplomacy and the peace process. He understood in many ways that it was the process itself that could bring a form of stability to the Middle East. His opening with Nixon to China is something that has continued to shape the contours of U.S. policy toward China. You mentioned he just went to China not that long ago after turning 100 years old uh, and was continually a voice for engagement between great powers, including the United States, Russia and China, despite the tensions of recent years. Yeah, I mean, that shuttle diplomacy helping stabilize relations between Israel and, and its Arab neighbors. The other thing I think, Susan, that sticks out is obviously, you know, his legacy and his influence continued to endure long after he was not formally in office. I mean, the Bush administration consulted him. He spent a lot of time at the White House informally giving, you know, almost every president advice since then. Uh, well, that's exactly right, Caitlin. He was uh, continued to be advising. And by the way, Democrats, many Democrats, as well as Republicans, were very interested, at least privately, to hear his counsel, despite uh, the view of, of, of many about a, sort of his public facing. He, he was speaking with Hillary Clinton. He uh, had the current Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, I believe, attended his 100th birthday party celebration in New York earlier this year. Uh, Henry Kissinger in his late 90s was still eager to be on the inside. Uh, He went and spoke with Donald Trump when Trump was president. Uh, Kissinger was someone for whom access was something he never gave up on. He always wanted to be in the thick of things. Susan Glasser, stand by. I want to bring in former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Martin Indyk, who joins me now, who wrote the book on Kissinger, Master of, of the Game. And thank you, Ambassador, for being here. I mean, what do you make thank of you. the fact that, you know, just the fact this is happening in this moment, thinking about his relationship that he had with Golda Meir, you know, what his influence in the region after the 1973 war, what's your reaction to, to learning of his death tonight? Well, there's a, there's a real echo down 50 years from that time in Yom Kippur in 1973, when Henry Kissinger, uh, surprised by the war, uh, intervened actively and managed to negotiate a ceasefire after 16 days of fighting and began a uh, process of negotiating territory for peace, which laid the foundations not only for the American-led peace process, but essentially for American domination in the Middle East and the exclusion of the Soviet Union from that area. He negotiated three agreements, uh, two between Israel and Egypt, one between Israel and Syria, two between Israel and Egypt, essentially took Egypt out of the conflict with Israel, which made it impossible for any other Arab state to contemplate going to war with Israel. And the Israel-Syria disengagement agreement still exists today and that has to keep the peace on the Golan Heights. And something he said to me when I was writing the book is he was not disappointed at the fact that 50 years later that agreement still held. He uh, 
uh, as I wrote the book Master of the Game, of diplomacy. And even though his great uh, acts of statesmanship in terms of playtime with the Soviet Union and arms control, and of course the other thing to China, I remembered, as well as his other controversial involvement in Vietnam, Laos, Chile, and other places. The place where I think he made, did the most good was in the Middle East, where he laid the foundations for peace between Israel and the United States. He never managed to deal with the Palestinian problem. They were a minor nuisance in those days, a terrorist organization, not a state, and Kissinger always dealt with states. He didn't have time for non-state actors. But I think there's a lot that we can learn from the way that he dealt successfully with the Arabs and the Israelis for the way that the United States can deal with the horrendous conflict that between the Israelis and Palestinians we face today. What are those lessons, do you think? What would he think those lessons are for, for the moment that we're in right now? Well, the first, and you actually saw it in Ukraine as well, is that you should always try to end the fighting as quickly as possible. Uh, that's controversial in this case because of the nature of Hamas, but, but that was his first instinct. Second was to, to try to get a negotiation going, but to be very careful about being too ambitious. I think his advice to Joe Biden today would be, it's fine to talk about a two-state solution, but it's a big mistake to try to achieve it in these circumstances. We cannot get there from near here. And so his approach, which marked a lot of the way he approached diplomacy, was uh, incremental. He was conservative. He was Republican. He was conservative in his approach. He was deeply skeptical of the pursuit of peace because he feared that it would lead to war. He called it the paradox of peace. Instead, he felt that it was important to try to ameliorate conflict, do his best to get the sides to reduce their animosity towards each other, to find ways to live with each other. And then over time, eventually, it might be possible to reach the final peace agreement, end of conflict agreement. But in the meantime, what was important was to ensure a balance of power in favor of those who sought to maintain order, stability, and give time for, for everyone to come to terms with each other. For that to work, there had to be what he referred to as a modicum of justice for all sides to feel that they were getting something out of this dragged out process of coming to terms with each other. So if you think about it today, Israelis and Palestinians are so far apart, so mired in conflict, his advice would be try to find a way to end the conflict and begin small steps towards reconciliation with the ultimate goal of a two-state solution, but a very real understanding that it's going to take a long time to get there from here. 
certainly that it's quite a legacy to reflect on, especially in this moment. Former Ambassador Martin Indyk, thank you for that. Of course, we are following this news closely. A former Secretary of State who shaped world affairs, certainly in the region that we're in right now, has now died. Henry Kissinger at age 100. We'll have more on that ahead. Also, our major breaking story that we are following here on the ground in Tel Aviv. We are less than three hours away from that truce deal between Israel and Hamas expiring. Right now, there is no extension in sight. We are waiting to see what is happening in these critical talks on the ground right now. That's in a moment. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We're following our other major story right now as negotiations are still ongoing to see what is going to happen with this temporary truce between Israel and Hamas. It is set to expire less than three hours from now, and right now, no extension has been announced. What we were told by sources is that Israeli officials were waiting for Hamas to hand over a list of 10 names, women and children, of who were going to be released on the next day in order to have another day, another pause in the fighting. So far, they have not gotten that list, certainly not one that they would accept. And so there are major questions on whether or not that is going to be resolved before the truce is set to expire at midnight Eastern, 7 a.m. here local. That leaves open the possibility that fighting could resume in just hours from now. We are covering this breaking story from every angle. We have experts, as expert analysis here on the ground in Tel Aviv, new reporting in Washington, and also hearing from the White House what they are saying. I want to start with Israeli journalist Nadav Eyal, live here in Tel Aviv. Obviously, we've been talking to you, Nadav, every single night about this. What is your sense of, of how much on the brink this deal really is? Look, Hamas can supply Israel with a better list than it did in the last 24 hours. And the problem is this. There is a category of women and children that Hamas is committed to. They have supplied a list that Israel is saying is not satisfactory. And that's the reason Israel has rejected this. There was a cabinet meeting. The decision was to tell Hamas, we're not accepting the li this list. And unless you supply us with a new list by 7 a.m., the truce is over and fighting will resume. So basically, the list that Hamas gave to Israel tonight was not sufficient. It didn't have only women and children on it, even though there's women and children left to be released. Exactly. Yeah, and that's the reason. Now, whether or not Israel will resume immediately at 7 a.m., the fighting or not, it's a question. But both sides are basically playing chicken here with each other. Uh, there is a very distinct possibility that we'll see this whole thing collapse. But right now, the negotiators are saying that both sides have an interest to reach some sort of an agreement until the morning. Yeah. And MJ, on that front, MJ Lee at the White House, as we're watching this as well, I mean, Secretary of State Blinken just arrived here a few hours ago. He is on the ground in Tel Aviv right now. How closely is the White House watching to see what could be happening in less than three hours from now? 
Yeah, Caitlin, it is a big, big priority for the White House right now to see this truce extended. It is why we saw Bill Burns, the CIA director in Doha yesterday, why Tony Blinken, as you mentioned, uh, is it was in Israel today. Uh, the longer the pause, U.S. officials say, the more hostages uh, that can come out, the more surge in humanitarian aid we can see uh, going into Gaza. Uh, and earlier today, as you remember, uh, one American citizen did end up being released uh, from Hamas captivity, but we don't have any word on the second uh, U.S. Uh, woman that is expected to be uh, believed to be held hostage, uh, not to account for the seven others uh, unaccounted for Americans that are supposed to be uh, believed to be held uh, in Gaza as well. Uh, so uh, what we are seeing tonight uh, I think is just how much this truce has been a day-by-day -day sort of ordeal where all of the parties involved basically have to wait for Hamas to produce a list. Uh, but I, it is worth noting that in previous nights, we have seen uh, different problems, uh, different issues come up, and they did eventually end up getting resolved. Of course, there's so much focus on this right now because there is an actual deadline. And once that deadline is passed, Israel has made clear the fighting is going to continue. Yeah, I mean, that's the major question here. And for on what could be next militarily, I mean, Colonel, you have been watching this as Israel is now paused its operations, its military operations in Gaza. There, It's very quiet here in Tel Aviv. Previously, you could hear what was happening in Gaza, the constant bombardment and then that ground invasion that was underway. The troops are still on the ground. I mean, how quickly could the fighting resume if this truce it doesn't get extended? Yeah, Caitlin, it could resume fairly quickly, actually, because the Israelis are in significant positions in northern and central Gaza. Uh, so they have some tactical advantages that they could exploit. By the same token, Hamas has also been active. Uh, they have been uh, caught uh, in uh, various places trying to emplace IEDs and, and things like that. And also there have been a couple of skirmishes with the Israeli forces, uh, even in spite of uh, the, the pause and, and the fighting. So uh, this, these hostilities could resume very quickly, and I'm fairly certain that the Israelis have some plans that they could execute at the drop of a hat. And that's, uh, of course, something that uh, you know, could spell danger to uh, the whole process of trying to extend this truce. Colonel Cedric Clayton, we will be watching closely. MJ Lee at the White House, Nadav Ayal, thank you all for this as we are watching so closely to see what does happen here and whether or not this temporary truce that has been in place for several days now is now about to come to an end. The youngest hostage taken, we do know, has become a symbol of the cruelty of this entire ongoing ordeal. The world has been waiting anxiously for the release of 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Tonight, though, Hamas is claiming, without any evidence, I should note, that he has been killed, along with his four-year-old brother and their mother, who also were taken hostage on October 7th. We are learning more from Israel tonight on how they're assessing that claim, and we'll speak to a member of the Bibas family right after this. Perhaps one of the most glaring parts of today's list of hostages who are released is who was not on that list. The youngest hostage, 10-month-old Kafir Bibas. Hamas is now claiming tonight, without providing any evidence, I should note, that he and his four-year-old brother Ariel and their mother, Shiri, were killed in an Israeli airstrike. It's a claim that Israel says it is assessing 
And there is also no word on their father, Yarden, who was also taken hostage, we believe, as well that day on October 7th. Joining me now is the great uncle of Kafir and Ariel, Maurice Schneider. Thank you, Maurice, for being here. We have been speaking with a lot of your family members in the last several days. And it's kind of hard for me to even know where to start with this conversation. I know Israeli officials have been in touch with the family. What are you hearing from them? Uh, first of all, thank you for having me, Ms. Collins. So what I'm hearing from Israel is, is, is the same news that you're hearing everywhere else. What we know that on October 7, right, right after 8 o'clock, 8 a.m., there are famous videos that show the terrifying image of Sherry holding her two red-haired babies that it has become such a, so popular. She's holding them. She's alive. Ariel and Fear are alive. She's been pushed by Hamas terrorists. And, and there are videos there. She's been taken alive. There are videos that show that she's taken to Gaza. They have her and the two babies alive. Then they claim that somebody else took them. Then they claim that they were somewhere else. They don't say anything. Then they would say that they don't know where they are. And now they're claiming they are, they, they are not alive. It's Hamas responsibility for us, 100%, that they have them, they have to return them, like, any, like all the other hostages, that they, they have to return, and all the other ones that they have uh, returned already. It's their responsibility. They, they took them alive. They are alive in yeah. our for us. They have, like you said just earlier, they have claimed that, they, that they, they are not alive and they have no proof of it. There's no proof of it. So far, the news is that Hamas have them last and Hamas is going to give them back. Yeah. Well, and I think it's an also important to note that Hamas claimed at one point that another hostage, Hannah Katzir, had been killed in an Israeli airstrike. She was released on day one. It was a lie. There's also, there have been no strikes since the truce went into effect on Friday. So it does raise questions. But have you gotten, has the family gotten any kind of update from the Israeli government on whether or not they think Hamas is lying no. here or uh, what their assessment uh, is? Uh, like you said, Hamas had claimed before that people have died and they, uh, they, uh, the, the surface to be alive and that's, a great thing, uh, like from the government of Israel and the IDF, there is absolutely no has not been communication to my family till uh, even now. I've been checking information from them. Nothing, nothing has been told to them. Absolutely nothing. And I, again, like I said, they were taken alive. There's evidence of videos that the whole world has been able to see, and we can repeat watching them as many times as we want. They were taken alive. They were taken to Gaza alive. They were with Hamas. Hamas gave them to somebody else. That's what they claim. They claim they were in Hayunis. Uh, they, as far as I know, Israel, Israel never uh, strike uh, Hayunis. And as far as we know, Hamas has them. Hamas has to give them back. Maurice, I know you're holding out hope tonight. We are too, obviously, these two precious little boys and their parents. And uh, 
we're just thinking of you guys. And thank you for joining me and for coming on to talk about something that is unimaginably difficult. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. It, thank it you, is Maurice, a, and please keep us updated. I, I, absolutely, it's difficult. And I hope that this turns to be, to ends up to be a, a, a good story after all. Thank you. So do we. Thank you, Murray Schneider, great uncle of Kafir and Ariel Bibas. We will continue to follow that story that has been so heartbreaking and painful to keep up with. Uh, we'll also talk about the new details that we're learning to about tonight about what hostages who have been released from captivity, what they endured while they were in Gaza. A doctor who has treated dozens of those who are freed will join me right after a quick break. From executive producers Park Chan-wook and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. As the current deal to release hostages expires in just a matter of moments at midnight tonight, still no end in sight whether or not there's going to be an extension. But we have just seen video of one of the vans of hostages arriving at Sheba Medical Center here in Tel Aviv, not far from where I'm standing now, as we're learning more about what some of the other hostages who have been freed, what they endured while they were in Hamas captivity. While several have suffered visible physical wounds, all of them are dealing with the psychological trauma of what they have just been through. Family members say it is especially apparent in the children that have returned from captivity. Joining me now on that is Dr. Atai Pesak, who has treated more than two dozen of the returned hostages. He is the CEO of the largest pediatric ICU here in Israel. And you've been a doctor for more than 20 years. What has this past week been like for you? It's been uh, really crazy. It's been uh, an emotional uh, roller coaster shifting from the optimism and, and joy when we, we see the hostages uh, come back, reunite with their families. There's a lot of uh, excitement there and a lot of uh, really heartwarming moments. And on the other hand, uh, a couple hours pass, uh, the joy of the return kind of fades away and then we start hearing the stories of what it was like being in uh, Hamas captivity for uh, 50 days or more. And uh, those stories are not simple. Um, what are those kinds of stories that you're hearing? So, you know, um, these people have went through so much, um, starting of, on October 7th and, and the experience of being taken from their homes, and then um, the uncertainty of what's going to happen, uh, and then the torture that they uh, underwent when they were there. Um, and there's no single story that is like the other. Uh, variability is really uh, significant, uh, especially when this comes from uh, the kids that we see mm -hmm. and treat and the experience uh, those kids had. Uh, if you just think about even not talking about the physical uh, and emotional stress, um, we have a kid that was separated for, from her mom. Uh, she returned, her mom stayed over. Just that moment of not knowing what's going to happen when you're separated from your mother after spending 48 days with I mean, her. It must have been so traumatic. Yeah. Um, but I'm really happy to say that, like, 
right now as we speak, they're reuniting. That's so. Hila Rotem and her exactly. mother, who they were separated right. inexplicably. Uh, you know, what we've heard from some of the parents is that, you know, the children, they're whispering, or they don't want to talk, or they just cry in the middle of the night. I mean, how do you even begin? I can't even imagine with an adult, but how do you even begin with a, a child who's four years old, 10 years old, 13 years old, to, to process this trauma with them? Right. So we, you, don't, you don't start. You just wait. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very, very delicate uh, interactions that you undertake. Uh, you wait for it a little bit. Um, the first steps, the things that we do in the hospital when they come in, this is just a transitional period for them, is to kind of wane down the, exper- the experience, the excitement within the, the lights, mm-hmm. because they have not been exposed to light, some of them, for a long time. Uh, we keep everything really, really quiet. Uh, and gradually, you would see the child kind of comes out of the shadow of a child that we see when they come back. Um, and then uh, kids are kids. So by playing with them, by interacting with them through art, uh, through playing with uh, dogs, like treatment dogs and things like that, you start seeing things um, come out. Um, and, but that's gonna be a very, very long process for, for them. Um, we are there for them, the, the best teams in Israel are all set on actually writing the book or the protocol because this is uh, something uh, you know we have never encountered uh, as medical yeah, professionals. There is no protocol. Doctor, I know you're incredibly busy doing this and dealing with this and your staff, please pass on our thanks to them and thank you for, for taking the time to share what that's like with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, doctor. In addition to that, we showed you last night an 84-year-old grandmother. She was in a wheelchair. She was among the hostages who was being cheered, it appeared, by the crowds in Gaza as Hamas was handing them over to the Red Cross. Her family is here next to share what she has been through. As we are waiting right now at this hour to see if this temporary truce between Israel and Hamas is going to expire or whether or not it will be extended, what it's supposed to do at midnight Eastern time, there's a tremendous amount of relief being felt tonight for the family of 84-year-old Ditsa Hyman. She was one of the 10 Israeli hostages released yesterday. You saw her in that video. She was the one in the wheelchair. And now her family is learning details about what her time was like as a hostage of Hamas. Joining me now is Dita's grandson-in-law, Asaf Zohar, and thank you so much for being here. How, how is she doing tonight? Physically, she's doing okay, and we are extremely relieved that she is doing okay because uh, when we saw the, the, the images of her in a wheelchair, that was heartbreaking because Dita was never, ever in a wheelchair. She's an 84 years old, extremely uh, proud person, and she's independent, and she's living on, living on her own. She cooks for herself, she cleans for herself, she used to play the host for all 25 of us when we showed up at her house. Uh, yeah, I love uh, those photos of everyone having having a meal together. I mean, but you're hearing more about what she went through. I know it's not, you know, it's a slow process, but what have you heard from her? Uh, the, the, the story is coming out of her very, very slowly and, and she keeps telling us that it's her story to, to tell. So the, the only thing that we can tell uh, for now is that she thinks she was up in an attic 
uh, for quite a while and she was away from everybody else. She was being held uh, isolated from everybody else. But I got to tell you that the, the amazing thing about Ditsa, the, the story that Ditsa is telling is the story of 240 other hostages that have been taken. And when you say these words, the hostages that have been taken, it doesn't even, it doesn't even begin to describe what really happened there. It's, it's just a crime against humanity. And when you say a crime against humanity, you actually mean that they are taking an 84-year-old grandmother from her home in a kibbutz. That is, I can't even explain to you how, how, uh, how easygoing the kibbutz was. Mm-hmm. You go into the kibbutz and everything is green, everything is nice, and you live right next to Gaza Strip, and you, you try to, to uh, imagine that it's a peaceful place. And then this happens on, on uh, October 7th, which explains to you that these guys who live across the fence from us are just savages. There's no other way to describe the amount of pain that we are experiencing right now as a nation. Yes, I'm her grandson-in-law, and and I experienced this pain very, uh, very personally, but I also lost 17 friends. 17 of my friends are dead right now because of that attack, and uh, four of my friends are still being held hostage. Yosef, his uh, two sons, and his daughter. Yeah are still being held in Gaza Strip, and we don't even know what's going on with them. So these crimes are crimes against me. They're crimes against you. They are crimes against entire uh, the state of Israel and humanity. And you mentioned the, the kibbutz and what life is like there. You know, these like villages where it's very familial. Everyone knows everyone. And a lot of Gazans worked there. And there was, you know, I mean, this was a, more of a left-leaning community that, than what you said. I think that's something that people outside of Israel um, may not know. But you talked about your grandmother that, Tisa was released, but she doesn't have a home to go to. That's that's one of the things that you have to tell your grandmother. How do you tell your grandmother that she doesn't have a home to go back to? Uh, Many of them. Did she know about the full scope of what had happened to her home? We haven't talked about that yet because it's very emotional. I mean, you are talking about an entire community that's just gone. And there are several communities that are gone right now. I'm talking to my friends on October 7th. I was talking to my friends, to three families. One of them has been murdered as we were talking on WhatsApp, texting each other back and forth. Uh, Some of them are hiding in the attic, waiting for this to be over. Some of them were in a bomb shelter, telling me that there are grenades thrown at the door. And I I can't believe what I'm I'm reading and and I'm texting back and I'm trying to talk to them and I'm trying to call them. And, And one of them, uh, Meir and, and uh, Liz were actually murdered as we were talking. And then her, her sister is writing to me, they have been shot, they have been killed. Their seven-year-old daughter is sit- hiding in a closet right now texting me that mom and dad has, have been shot. And this has been going on everywhere. In Cholit, near Itzhak, I can tell you all these weird names of, of these kibbutzim, but you have to understand that these small communities have been trying to live next to Gaza Strip and have been trying to uh, uh, make a living right next to the Palestinians and trying to, to trade and trying yeah. to, like you said, Palestinians were working there with them together. It's just heartbreaking. We're glad that she's safe, but I know it's, it's a long road ahead. Thank you for coming to share what that's been like for her. Thank you. And obviously we're keeping her in our thoughts. A lot more to come on what the experience has been like for many more of them. We'll be back in just a moment. Thank you so much for joining us from Tel Aviv. A new kind of conversation with Gail King and Charles Barkley is starting right now. King Charles and its premiere begins now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.